Please stand. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. Before we read, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, um, give us supernatural strength through the Holy Spirit to overcome the weakness of our flesh and the dullness of our minds and hearts. Lord, by your Spirit, open our eyes to behold the wonderful things in your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. From Hebrews 6, starting at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So... When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. That sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, promise of God. Let's keep that in mind. We hear David go to God for refuge in Psalm 61. Psalm 61. To the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Amen. You may be seated. This particular psalm has a special significance for me personally for a couple reasons. There was a song that 
Uh, my parents and I used to sing in the car, often on the way to church on Sunday mornings. It was uh, from a Ricky Skaggs CD, except it was uh, this a cappella song that he sings at the very end, just his voice, one of his gospel-oriented bluegrass albums. Um, but he sings it a cappella at the end of the album. And uh, we'd sing the song on the way to church, and we would always break into this like three- or four-part harmony, depending on who's in the car. When we got to the chorus, that said, Higher than I, higher than I, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. So that phrase from this psalm has really kind of been imprinted uh, on my heart since that time. The second memory that I have of this psalm is from my, uh, my second year in seminary when I got a call from my parents in early November of that year that my grandfather, my, my, my mom's dad, had uh, taken a turn for the worse after some complications from a surgery, and they weren't sure if he was going to live many more days. And so this is actually the only time I've ever taken Amtrak to go anywhere. I took the train from Philadelphia all the way down to Atlanta, Georgia, left Annie and Margaret, who was a toddler at the time, in our row house in Philadelphia that came down later on uh, to try to go and see him at the hospital, which I did. Um, before that time, I had never actually been with, present with someone who was um, truly on their deathbed before. And the family was kind of taking turns going back into the ICU unit because you can only have a couple people at a time. And my dad, I remember hearing my dad reading repeatedly to my grandfather from this psalm. And so important uh, were these words to him after he had heard it from my dad. So tightly was he clinging to the words of this psalm that more than once while I was back there in the room, he would, he was struggling for breath every time, but he would ask, read me Psalm 61. Read Psalm 61 again. And so we did many times as he was very close to passing from this life into the next. And I tell you those two stories, um, not, I hope, to be self-indulgent and sentimental. I tell you them for a purpose. I think it's a very good test for us to think when we read any psalm, any passage of scripture, perhaps especially the psalms, to think not just how does this psalm apply to my life, that's important, but how would this psalm apply to my death? So if I were about to leave this life, what is the comfort or the warning or the instruction that this portion of God's word would have for me there and then. Because uh, God's word is not just what a Christian ought to live by. It is what a Christian ought to die by. And in the Psalms particularly, the Lord very richly teaches us and equips us gives us the words to cry out to him, whether in life or in death.
Okay, so let's look at this psalm in three parts tonight. We're going to call them first, Lead Me to the Rock, verses 1 through 3. Second will be, Let Me Dwell, verses 4 and 5. And then third, Long Live the King, verses 6 through 8. So, Lead Me to the Rock, Let Me Dwell, and Long Live the King. All right, so starting with verse 1, David says, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. So I bet you've probably had the experience of going up to somebody and uh, saying, hey, can I ask you a question? And if they're feeling uh, really smart that day, they say to you, well, you just did. You want to ask me another one? Right? Um, It's kind of interesting and striking that David starts his prayer by asking that God would listen to his prayer. Right? Why would he pray for God to hear his prayer? What this does is it sets the tone for David's approach to God. It sets the tone for what David is doing here as he speaks these words. And as he says, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer, it's expressing his attitude towards the Lord, the manner in which he's approaching him. It expresses his humility. It expresses his position of need and helplessness before God is his kind of open, empty hands acknowledging his utter need and dependence on the Lord. Uh, I thought this was pretty interesting as I was preparing for the morning and evening sermons, that the word for cry there also appeared in our sermon text this morning. Um, and it's, it's different. there are other words for maybe calling out that are, the Bible sometimes uses. This one in particular means, <clears throat> it can mean a ringing cry, a ringing cry, and so it can refer to a loud sound that somebody makes expressing either great joy or great sorrow. And I mentioned this in the morning sermon, right? This morning, it was translated loud singing in Zephaniah 3.17. He will exult over you with loud singing. So the point here is that this is a cry of very strong emotion, and it's loud. It's a loud, ringing cry. It's the sort of cry, like I mentioned this morning, that if you didn't have the context, you might wonder, is this person really, really happy or really, really sad? I'm not sure just from the noise that they're making. In this case, it's a cry of need. It's a cry of desperation. Oh, God, hear me cry out to you, this ringing cry. Listen to my prayer. And you might think, well, of course... Of course, God will listen to his prayer. That's just what God does. God always listens to our prayers. I wonder if we take that attitude. Sometimes we're taking that for granted, that God listens to our prayers. I mean, who says that God has to do that? Where is, where is that written, that God has to obey this rule, that, well, when people pray, this is just what God has to do? Because he's... if you write a letter to um, the president or even the governor, um, Maybe I'm just cynical, but I think it's pretty unlikely that it would actually get read by the person's, person whose name is on the envelope, right? It's going to be passed on to some staff or something. It gets so many. But the Lord is not like that. The Lord hears and he listens with perfect, infinite understanding and attention to everything that we say. We don't want to just lose how amazing that is. In fact, I wonder if we've really taken it to heart. If we've really come to terms with that reality that God actually hears and listens to prayer. Because the reason I say it is because if I think that we I think that if we did, don't you think that we would pray a lot more? 
if we really believed that, the Lord listens when I speak to him. If you knew and you trusted in the, you know, the moments of life where, it really, where we really live this out, if we knew and trusted in those moments that the God of the universe was really listening to everything that you had to say to him, don't you think that you would take advantage of that opportunity as often as you could? We should be praying. This is one of the things that we can pray when we feel our own prayerlessness. Is, oh, Lord, would you open our eyes to this? Would you soften our hearts? Would you unlock our souls and open our lips to pray like we really believe that you are there, that you're listening to every word. I love the last... Tonight we used for the Confession of Faith the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is much beloved for good reason. Uh, the last question and answer I've quoted to you before where it says, it is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I pray for. The Lord's willingness to listen is so much stronger and more steady and constant than our willingness to pray is, or our earnestness, or our attentiveness when we pray. And on the one hand, it's kind of devastatingly humbling, But on the other hand, what a comfort that is. What a comfort it is that God makes up for, by his character, so much that is lacking in our own life of prayer. So I guess the application for us from this first verse is simply, let us pray, right? Let us pray. I know that doesn't mean the sermon's over now. I'm saying, let us pray this week. Let us cry out to God. Let us tell him, Lord, listen to my prayer. And when we say that, let's trust that he does. Trust that he will. Don't be a prayerless Christian. Because there's no greater way, perhaps, we could impoverish ourselves than not to pray. Not to avail ourselves of the presence and the attention of our great God, our Heavenly Father, who loves to listen to us. So let us pray. Now, unlike uh, several of the last few psalms that we've been looking at, the the heading for this one um, doesn't give us any biographical information about how this psalm relates to some particular moment in David's life. Although, we might be able to say from verse 2 that it it would stand to reason, it's a good educated guess, that David at this point is somewhere far away from Jerusalem. That he's not at home. He's far away from the tabernacle, the presence of God there. From the end of the earth, I call to you, he says. A good reminder here that the Lord hears us no matter where we are, from any place. Remember Psalm 139, if I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the... Wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. There's nowhere that's out of reach for the Lord, right? There's nowhere that the omnipresent God will not hear you when you cry. And that's another great comfort for the believer. There's no circumstance where your prayer will be so weak that God will not hear it. And our prayers are often weak, right? But the Lord is an infinitely powerful listener. You and I have to ask each other all the time, you know, 
what did you say? Could, could you speak up a little bit? I didn't hear you. Regular thing that we have to say to one another. But David knows when my heart is faint, God is still going to hear me. David is crying out to God out of his weakness, not out of his strength. And that's so important. You know, we can be so tempted. This is one of the strategies I think the devil uses to keep us from praying is, for, is to deceive us into thinking, well, I really need to be in a more prayerful like, state of mind before I can pray. Right? We got to wait until we feel spiritually strong before we'll pray. That's a great excuse not to do it. I'm not feeling in a spiritual frame of mind. I'm not pe- feeling very prayerful, so I just won't do it right now. That's nonsense. That's when we need to pray the most. We need to call out to God out of our spiritual weakness, not out of our spiritual strength. Okay, so here David is. He's, he's probably in a distant place from Jerusalem. He's feeling weak. He's feeling feeble, feeling faint. And he says, he's crying out to God. And what does he ask for? He says, lead me. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. So any military strategist will generally seek to get the high ground, right? That position of strength that looks down on the area around. If a flood is coming and you're down in the valley, where do you want to get to? You want to get to the higher ground. And not just the higher ground, but the solid ground, right? The ground that's not going to wash away or have the uh, soil washed away from under it. Okay, but imagine this. Imagine a situation where you can see the higher ground, you know where it is, but what you can't see clearly is the way to get there. But then someone comes along and says, yes, I see the high ground too, and I know the way. Let me lead you there. Let me show you the way to that safer place. Let me show you the way out of this place of vulnerability and danger to that place of refuge and safety and security, that place where you can plant your feet and it won't move out from under you. That's what David is asking the Lord to do. Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And if you think about that, that's a kind of humbling thing to say because, first of all, David's admitting there's something higher than I am. There's something beyond me. There's something above me that I need and the and that I cannot get for myself. That's the other humbling part, that he doesn't know the way. Lord, it's not just that I need you. It's that I need you to help me get to you. I, I need you to lead me into that place of rest and safety that you promised to me because I don't have the spiritual resources to get there on my own. That's how David's teaching us to pray. So we can hear about God's grace and his provision for us in Christ. We can know about these things. We can even be able to tell other people about them, maybe very eloquently. Uh, We may have even experienced in the past God's help at other times. David says, you have been my refuge. You have been a strong tower against the enemy. But see, that knowledge and those past experiences are not enough. They're not enough to put us spiritually where we need to be today, in this moment. Because our flesh is so weak and our indwelling sin is so strong and our faith is so often so so pale. We're so distracted by so many things. And so what we need to do is we need to cry out to God, don't just show me the rock where I need to be. I can see that. I know where it is, but lead me there. 
overcome my weakness and help me to embrace those promises, to live out the truth of your word. I can't do that on my own. I need you to lead me there. Okay, so that's the first request that David has. Lead me to the rock. Second big request, verses 4 and 5, is let me dwell. Uh, This morning I briefly referenced Psalm 23, right? Very familiar psalm. And the end of it, I didn't quote this morning, says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the ultimate hope, the ultimate destination. Psalm 23 points us toward dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, Psalm 84, similar kind of idea, where David prays there, A day in God's courts is better than a thousand days anywhere else. He'd rather be a doorkeeper in God's house, a lowly servant there, than dwell in the, in the tents of wickedness and have kind of a, a posh place to live in, um, in a different place. Uh, and that in Psalm 84, he says that my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. So a person who knows their need and helplessness and is crying out to God to lead them to the place of safety is provided. That kind of attitude goes along with this other kind of attitude, this other desire, this desire to be near God, to be in his presence. We've been talking about this in Zephaniah, right? About seeking the Lord. That's what, on the basis of Deuteronomy, as Zephaniah is sort of preaching from the book of Deuteronomy, he's calling God's people, seek the Lord. We want to be near him. To dwell in his tent is the way that David pictures it here. Psalm 73, 28 says similarly, But for me, it is good to be near God. Can you say that about yourself? Is that your heart's desire? Is your heart's desire to be near God? Not just to know a lot about him, but to be near him. To dwell in his tent Of course, we have to think about a difference between David's context and ours. Now, living after Christ, um, God has not connected his presence on earth with a single uh, specific place, the tabernacle, which is what David is praying about here when he says, your tent. But what that tabernacle represented, that special holy presence of God with his people, that still applies to us. We still experience that today. Not less, but more fully, because what has Christ done from heaven? He has now poured out his spirit upon the church, and he has said that we together have become that temple where the Holy Spirit dwells, being built up together like living stones joined together by the Spirit's power. We are that temple. And so for us to pray this prayer, Lord, let me dwell in your tent forever. Well, first of all, it's expressing our desire to be wherever it is that God reveals his special holy presence. And where does he do that now? Well, think about this. What are we doing when we gather in worship like we're doing tonight? When we gather in worship, we're not so much entering into a temple as we are the temple. God is being present among us. So I can be a little misleading to call a room like this a sanctuary. 
Because we think, well, this is the holy place where we have to go to worship God. I can't remember where I heard this, but I think it was a good point. That we don't come into the sanctuary to worship God. It's this, the sanctuary comes into this room. Because when we assemble at God's call in the name of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is present with us. We are that sanctuary. We are that holy place. The living stones gathered together for the Spirit to dwell here. And by meeting here together and being God's temple and having God meet with us, do you realize what's happening? So we are practicing for eternity. We are doing now, together, what we will be doing in God's presence in the heavenly sanctuary where Christ is now for the forever future. And we should try to keep that in mind when we think about what worship really is all about and what it really is that we're doing here. And that's why the call to worship this morning was from Colossians chapter 3 where it says, set your minds on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's what we're being called to do throughout the Christian life and supremely in corporate worship, to set our minds on that heavenly sanctuary where Christ is. That's where we want to be. Okay, so let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. It's the second line of that verse. We've, we've seen that imagery many times by now in the Psalms. Very tender, very close imagery. The mother bird guarding her young, nurturing them. It goes on, for you, O God, have heard my vows. You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Notice that even though David is praying out of distress and weakness, he's also praying with confidence in God's promises. Um, And it's very interesting how those things go together. They're not opposites, the, the weakness and vulnerability and the confidence. They go together. Um, David trusts that God has already given him this heritage, even though right now he's experiencing great weakness and loss and being faint far away. It's like in Ephesians 1 when Paul says that in Christ you have obtained an inheritance. I mean, same thing as heritage, right? You have, a, you have obtained an inheritance, although you haven't yet come into possession of it, Paul says. The inheritance is yours, but you haven't come into that inheritance. You haven't come into possession of it yet. And yet God has given you a down payment of it. He's given you a guarantee of it, like a piece of that inheritance by giving you the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's point in Ephesians 1. To the praise of his glory, he says, until we acquire possession of it. And it's on the basis of that inheritance, that heritage. God has given us this heritage already in Christ. There's that settled certainty about what God, is gonna, what, what God has already given to us through the Holy Spirit. Knowing that, confident of that, that is how we're to pray. Out of our present weakness and need and frailty, because we're trusting in God's infinite supply and his, his promise to shower us with everything we need from that supply and to bring us into that perfect fullness in the end. The last section we're going to turn to is the third one, which I'm calling Long Live the King, which is, that's really... Uh, more, slightly more up to date, slightly more up to date way of um, expressing the heart of David's prayer here, uh, which might sound to you a little self-serving, since David is the king. They'd be praying, prolong the life of the king. Well, wait a second, that's David. Are you? Um, a couple of responses to that. First of all, there'd be nothing wrong with David praying for his own reign to continue, recognizing that this would be a blessing not only for him but for all of the people. But remember also, 
this is the more important point, that this is a prayer that's written not just for David's personal use. We talked about this a week or two ago, that the Psalms are not written just for David. They are not merely individual prayers. They are corporate prayers written for Israel to pray and for us as the, new, as the true Israel to pray. <clears throat> um, and so Israel, this psalm is designed for Israel to pray this psalm on behalf of their king. God's people together could sing, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. And I hope that you can see, this should come as no surprise to you, that this is a point where this psalm very clearly has its meaning rounded out, uh, not just in the earthly kingship of King David, but in the heavenly reign today of King Jesus See, think about Jesus praying this psalm in his own life. Jesus knew very clearly what it was like to be faint. Think about him in the wilderness, not having eaten anything for 40 days. That's just one example, not to mention the cross. Jesus knew what it was like to need refuge. We can hear Jesus crying out to God the Father on the cross with a loud voice. Think about Hebrews, the way it describes his loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And remember how that verse continues and it says, and he was heard. He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, it says he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. When Hebrews says that Jesus was heard, of course, that doesn't mean that he didn't have to die. He did die. He did pass through death. He did that for us, for our sin. But he was heard. He was delivered from death on the other side of it, in the resurrection. And that's where this psalm finds its ultimate fulfillment. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer to this prayer, prolong the life of the king and may his years endure to all generations. Because as Paul says in Romans 6, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And because it no longer has dominion over him, brothers and sisters, it no longer has dominion over you. You too will pass through it as Christ did. But that will not be the end of your story any more than it was for him because you too in Christ will be raised from the dead. You will spend that forever future in the presence of the King who is enthroned forever before God and whose years will endure to all generations and all through eternity. It's good news for the people of God. See, Christ, our King, has passed through the kind of weakness this psalm describes. He's passed through the desperation. He's passed through the pain, passed through the agony. He's passed through death itself. And now he's reigning in that perfect resurrection glory on the other side of all of those things. See, because he has passed through them, this is what's so important, and Hebrews makes a great deal of this, because he has passed through the first five verses of this psalm, Jesus can understand so well what we are saying when we cry to him. These same kinds of cries from our hearts. When we cry to God, even when we feel far from him, as David does here, even when our hearts are faint, the Lord Jesus hears us and he knows. 
And he will always hear. He will always help. He will always shelter us under his wings. Um, I, I know these are not very complicated lessons. These are, these are pretty simple truths that I preach to you a lot from the Psalms. I hope you don't find them too repetitious. I repeat them intentionally because they're some of the most important truths. Because these are the truths to worship God for. These are truths to live by. And these are truths to die by. They are the kinds of truths that you can turn over and over in your mind during sleepless nights. And they are truths you can turn over in your over and over in your mind on your deathbed. Uh, but please do not wait until then to pray in this way. Don't wait until then to get serious about crying out to God. This is a psalm that invites us, that urges us, that exhorts us to pray. Because the God of the universe is listening. Don't forget that. Don't ignore that. Don't ignore him. So let us pray, people of God. Let us pray now. Hear our cry, O oh God. Listen to our prayer. From the end of the earth... Lord, we call to you when our hearts are faint. Lord, lead us to the rock that is higher than we are. And Lord, let not not just be a prayer that we utter tonight just because we just heard this sermon. Lord, make this like breathing for us day by day and moment by moment. Make us a people of prayer, we ask. And overcome all the weakness that keeps us from becoming that which you've designed us and called us to be in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.